0: section five of chapters on evolution by andrew wilson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter two the study of biology part three the science of structure thus settles the questions which naturally arise respecting the relationships of the kangaroo by uniting it in classification with those forms which truly resemble it in structure so also with its physiology The second question how does it live would be answered in an exact fashion by the investigation of the life processes of the animal and by the knowledge which physiology would bring to bear upon the manner in which kangaroo existence is divided like that of all other animals between supporting its frame increasing its race and maintaining relations with the world around the question where is it found involves in its reply in the case of the kangaroo a large number of highly interesting and instructive considerations kangaroos are found in australia and adjacent islands alone why are they limited to this region of the earth's surface and why to put this question more generally has australia no native quadrupeds other than these marsupials and their near relations for it need hardly be added that the horse cow sheep and allied animals are all of recent introduction by the hand of enterprising, colonizing man. Looking at a zoological map of the world, a chart prepared solely with reference to the distribution of animal life, we should observe that the animals peculiar to Australia stop short on one side of a line called Wallace's Line, which passes in one part of its course between the little islands of Bali and Lombok in the eastern archipelago. The Straits of Lombok are about fifteen miles in width, yet that narrow sea divides the land of marsupials, Australia and adjacent islands, from other lands and islands in which no marsupials are found. Why then should the kangaroos and their marsupial kith and kin stop short at Wallace's line? The answer to this query involves considerations which extend over the whole domain of life science. The briefest possible explanation of the kangaroo's distribution must therefore suffice for our present purpose. Let us go back in imagination to that far back time in the history of our earth when the Triassic rocks were being formed. That period existed ages before the chalk in point of time. It was the period, moreover, when the first quadrupeds appeared on the earth's surface. These primitive animals were wholly of marsupial kind and entirely of the type of which our kangaroos and other australian mammals are the existing representatives not a single higher mammal thus graced the triassic forests no elephants roamed in triassic jungles the plains of these early times were unenlivened by the agile deer or by the grace of the antelope herds no carnivora roamed about to slay and devour the weaker races and the humblest quadrupeds were lords of animal creation and represented in themselves the fullness of the mammalian life which the later ages were destined to see over the whole land surfaces then in existence these low marsupial quadrupeds of the Triass, in due course spread in britain on the continent in the new world the fossil remains of these early triassic quadrupeds are found the best known of them being represented most nearly by the little banded anteater, Myrmacobius, living in Australia today. In the Triassic period, also, Australia obtained its marsupials. For that island continent was then part of the Asiatic, or Palearctic arctic mainland, and the connecting land was not then broken up into the islands of the eastern archipelago of today. The next phase in the drama of Australian quadruped life shows us that, at the close of the triassic and of the succeeding oolitic periods that land became disjointed from the mainland geological change made australia the island continent we see it today. and what of its quadrupeds these early marsupials left to themselves shut off from all possible invasion by and competition with higher and later quadrupeds flourished and grew apace in the australian land elsewhere and in the rest of the world the early marsupials were distanced in the struggle for existence which ensued on the evolution of higher types of life elsewhere than in australia they were killed off and at the close of the oolite age or that immediately succeeding the Trias, hardly a remnant of the great marsupial life of these two periods was left to bear witness to the first beginnings of mammals on the earth In Australia, how different was and still is the quadruped life? In the recent bone caves of Australia, we meet with the remains of giant marsupials, compared with which the largest kangaroo of today appears a pygmy form. These are the lineal descendants of the first mammalian population which Australia obtained from the Triassic period. Thus, left unopposed until the advent of the colonists, the marsupials have lived and flourished in Australia which still retains the main features of its Triassic and oolitic life. For in its seas swims the Port Jackson shark, elsewhere known only by fossil representatives from the oolitic rocks. In its rivers lives the curious fish, Serratidus, whose teeth occur fossil in Triassic and oolitic formations. The cycids and aracaria. Representing a typical and universal plant vegetation of the oolitic times, still flourish in Australian soil, though elsewhere scanty or non existent. And even the shellfish on the shores of Australia belong to types which flourished in our own oolitic seas, but which have since practically died out over the world, save the Australian shores thus australian life of today is merely the survival of the general life which prevailed over the world in the Triassic and oolitic periods the history of the kangaroo points out clearly enough that only on the theory of evolution having given rise to new species from the ancient and original triassic stock can we account for the persistence in a corner of our existing world of the otherwise lost and extinct population of the first quadrupeds lastly the opossums which as a family of marsupials we should have expected to find in australia are discovered as already remarked in america how came they then to inhabit the new world is a question worth answering along with that which inquires into the distribution of the kangaroo the opossums firstly represent a family which never entered australia they were plentifully existent in europe and elsewhere in the oolitic period and even nearer our own day namely in the eocene and miocene formations the opossums lived in the old world these facts are accurately told us by the history of their fossil remains thence their range extended to the new world and when a subsequent eruption of higher quadrupeds killed off the opossum race elsewhere these animals continued to flourish and grow in the new world presumably because the struggle for existence was and is less severe in the latter region as the kangaroos are survivals of a quadruped life worldwide in triassic and oolitic times so the opossums are survivals in their turn of later marsupials than the australian animals finding in the new world to which they migrated a suitable home the opossums distanced in the competition in the old world and now extinct therein have flourished apace across the sea and have extended their bounds even into the northern part of the american continent the deep water of the narrow wallace's line between bali and lombok therefore indicates a channel of great antiquity which severed australia from the nearest land and which presenting an impassable gulf to migrating forms has kept the original quadruped life of that island continent free separate and unmingled with the higher types of life evolved since Triassic and Oolitic times. Thus do we answer the question, where is the kangaroo found? The remaining question, how has it come to be what it is, or in other words, how has it assumed its present place in the organic series, has been answered in greater part by the preceding observations. If the first quadruped population of Australia was, as we know it to have been, of marsupial nature, our existing kangaroo must be the descendant of pre-existing species. Laws of descent affected by variation have unquestionably produced and evolved the existing kangaroo from ancestors more or less resembling itself. This much is clear, at least, that although the exact lines of descent and variation of the marsupial families of today are as yet undetermined, the great principle of descent through variation from pre-existing species remains not a theory merely but an inferred and unmistakable fact from the circumstances of the case as the various opossums now inhabiting america are the descendants of the one or more primitive species which first colonized the new world so the varied marsupial life of australia is the legitimate outcome through variation of the primitive quadrupeds which first peopled that strange land in the old triassic days as Professor Flower has remarked, even the likeness between the feet of the marsupials is too close to admit of any doubt of their derived relationship of inheritance from a common ancestor. And the causes which have produced the striking likeness of this one feature in marsupial history are simply those which have also evolved from a common origin the varied features and new offshoots which mark the marsupial life of today the somewhat extended survey thus taken of the means and methods of biological study obviates any necessity for extending more fully our researches into the remaining characteristics of modern biology what remains to be said on this latter head may however be shortly summed up in the light of previous remarks natural history science as prosecuted of old was a mere collection of descriptions of species it was a science in which the search after new species merely for the sake of adding to the number of known forms, was the paramount aim of the zoologist and botanist. Classifications grew apace, but the relations of one species to another, of group to group, or the general plan upon which the animal world was constructed and organized, were either undreamt of as subjects of study, or were cursorily dismissed from scientific view we have but to open a volume of natural history lore of the past decade of zoology to realize the truth of this statement we may readily perceive that attention to outside characters and to the construction of artificial systems of classification represented the chief labors of the biologists of past years but impelled by the researches of cuvier who laid the foundations of morphology and who clearly mapped out the animal world into four great types three of which to this day remain much as his genius left them, biology awoke to a new lease on life. Placed in possession of some definite aim in the investigation of animal structure, zoologists began the systematic examination of the great divisions of the animal world which Cuvier had mapped out. Next in order came the era marked by the speculations of Lamarck, in turn succeeded that characterized by the imperishable deductions and suggestions of darwin then was supplied the guiding clue for want of which zoology and botany had been left to progress in slow and desultory fashion the impetus given by darwinism and evolution to biology may be fully appreciated when we reflect that in evolution we perceive the suggestion of a rational purpose in the researches we undertake into the structure physiology and distribution of living beings when we discover that life everywhere exhibits progress that the development of animals and plants has been a work of progress in the past that modification proceeds apace even now and that it is possible to discover the clear plan and method of creation in the forms and development of living things we may readily appreciate the incentives to research in all directions which the idea of evolution as the method of nature has given to the biology of today. Understanding something of the theory of the living universe, the biologist can set himself to work, hopefully to unravel many of the so-called mysteries of life, asking himself regarding every living thing the question, how has it come to occupy this or that place in nature, he firstly studies its development as a clue to its descent and origin. The modern biologist looks to development above all else to teach him the true nature and relationships of animals and plants. If a sea squirt's development runs in parallel lines to that of the lowest fish, then he naturally concludes that like results in this case follow from similarity of origin, and fishes and sea squirts become organically connected through community of descent. If a sacculina, existing as a mere parasitic bag of eggs on a hermit crab, passes through essentially the same stages in its development as a shrimp, a water flea, a barnacle, a crab, and all other crustaceans, he feels bound to believe that these varied forms have sprung from one and the same rootstock. If he finds that a frog, in its early life, is essentially a fish in structure and physiology, he assumes that he is being taught the descent of the frog race from aquatic and fish-like ancestors otherwise why he may reasonably ask should nature trouble herself to develop a fish stage in the formation and growth of the land inhabiting frog if he finds that man's development proceeds along the same lines as those of all other vertebrate animals if he knows that man like the fish has gill clefts in his neck in early life which clefts are of no use whatever to their possessor if he finds that other structures found permanently in lower animals have a temporary existence in human development is he not morally bound to believe that human development being a moving panorama of lower forms of life man himself has had his beginning in some pre-existing and lower form if he finds that it is impossible in early life to distinguish the human embryo from that of other quadrupeds Is he not logically bound to regard such likeness as a proof of man's lowly origin? Such are the queries which the biologist of today is forced to face, and when the facts of development are fairly stated, the answer is not for a moment doubtful, if only from the overwhelming conviction that nature has written her method and way of creation in our evolution, and that it is, or should be, our highest pride and glory to read aright that strange eventful history. No less powerfully are the deductions and studies of the modern biologist aided by such considerations as those which deal with variation in species as a great fact of life. Formerly, when the fixity of species was deemed a grand fact of biology, the idea that variation might exist was unwillingly entertained, if allowed to have any weight at all. Now, with exact knowledge that variation exists to a greater or less extent in every living species, that change is the law and fixity in species the exception, we can clearly discern nature's purport in inaugurating such change as the preliminary to the formation of new races and species. We know that variation proceeds apace in the existing world of life. We ourselves evolve at large, New races of cattle and sheep, of pigeons and dogs and horses. And even if it be fully and freely admitted that the causes of variation are still obscure, there will be found no competent biologist to deny either the reality of the changes in species now proceeding in the world or the results such changes have wrought in the past. Subsidiary methods and aids in studying the biology of today exist in such subjects as rudimentary organs homologies missing links and the like if we discover that a whalebone whale which has no teeth in the adult state develops before birth teeth which never cut the gum and are gradually absorbed we must either assume that nature is woefully improvident in developing useless structures or that these useless teeth have a meaning if we find that whilst a horse walks upon the single toe of each foot it possesses other two rudimentary and useless toes in its splint bones, the same idea of meaning or no meaning comes vividly before our minds. Rudimentary organs teach us, like development, valuable lessons concerning the past history of the race which possesses them. The useless teeth of whales represent organs once well developed in the ancestors of our existing toothless cetaceans and when we find in our horse rudiments of two toes we expect that the single-toed animal is descended from a three-toed race is such an idea probable may be asked if we visit yale college in america and observe the array of fossil horses there displayed we shall be able to trace the evolution of the horse in time from not only three-toed but four-toed and five-toed ancestors there placed in a graduated series is the proof that evolution is a stable fact no missing links require to be supplied in the series of yale college and those who can maintain in the face of such an array of testimony that evolution is an impossibility and development a myth may be regarded as possessing a hardness of heart against honest conviction compared with which the egyptian obstinacy against which moses declaimed and aaron battled is mildness indeed Homology, or the science of likenesses, again, teaches us that when organs are built upon the same type, like the feet of marsupials or the limbs of all vertebrates, from the arm of man to the wing of the bird and the breast fin of the fish, they must have had a common origin. The true nature of organs and parts in animals and plants is only discoverable after a careful study and comparison of their structure and affinities as declared by homology such are a few of the aids to biological study which the modern naturalist has at his command under the light and countenance of evolution every new fact fits sooner or later into an appropriate niche in the biological fabric no one fact remains isolated and distinct as in days of old but all our knowledge of the past and present of living beings tends to supply us with a rational understanding of their origin and progress towards their existing structure and position in nature. Evolution thus takes its stand on the rational interpretation of the facts of nature. Its reasonable aspect presents its strongest claim to support. Its rational explanation of former mysteries commends it to the unbiased truth-seeker as the key to the former mysteries and inexplicable problems of the past. Founding its data upon observed facts, The evolution theory holds that the living species of this world are in a state of constant change and variation. It maintains that animals and plants are produced in greater numbers than can obtain the necessaries of life. It postulates what observation confirms the operation of a struggle for existence in which the weakest forms, which are those that do not vary, go to the wall, whilst the strong, those that do vary, survive. It holds that nature thus appears to set a premium on variation, that she encourages change in species, and that firstly new varieties, then new races, and lastly new species, are thus produced by the modification of the old. The theory thus presented calls to its aid all the facts of biological science. It shows by development that the way of nature is that of progressing from the general to the special. It notes that extinct forms of life can frequently be shown to be intermediate between living forms and that missing links are capable of being supplied as knowledge grows and as research advances. It correlates outward or physical changes in land and sea with the change in species and shows how varying conditions of life modify the living form. It enlists, as we have seen, the facts of geographical distribution in its favor and proves, by an appeal to geology as well, that the modification of life through the changes of land and sea accounts for the otherwise puzzling phenomena viewed in the distribution of living beings over the world's surface. Laying hold of every detail of natural science, this theory of nature has thus wrought a mighty revolution in biology. Whilst geology and other sciences have molded their conceptions on the consistent theory of the universe Which evolution lays down. It is the pride and boast of evolution that the avenues to which knowledge leads through this theory of the universe are illimitable, that knowledge may truly grow from more to more under its benign influence. And best of all, whilst science is thus made the handmaid of truth, we also find that the spirit of reverence in face of the facts of nature is also inculcated by the study of development. There is no room for the idea of arbitrary interference with the laws of nature, when evolution has fairly asserted its right to be heard. As in the inorganic world around us, law reigns supreme. As planets revolve in their cycles with unchanging regularity, so in the world of life there is demonstrated to us the existence of law and ordered sequence which prevails in lowest as in highest spheres of being, which directs the destinies and development of man equally with the movements of the animalcule, and which as fully explains the evolution of a leaf as it does the formation of a world. End of section 5, chapter 2, part 3.